We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, Elmani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, Elmani. Second Chronicles chapter 30, and uh, it's a lot, it's a cool message about revival, you know? Um, some people who are asleep spiritually, they need to be awakened. Uh, some people who are, you know, kind of in one sense uh, um, passed out and they're like on the verge of dying and someone comes and resuscitates them. You know, that's, uh, that's what we're talking about in today's study. And maybe you're here today and you need that revival. You need that spark. You need that resuscitation. I, I think that there's a lot here in this chapter that's, uh, that's really helpful. It's, again, one of those chapters that is so tough to outline. Did you guys ever get one of those, uh, I don't know what they're called, but they're like, they're knives, but they're not just knives. They have all the other tools in it, and they're kind of all folded. What are they called? Swiss Army knife. Yeah. And they have all these things in it, right? And you're like, whoa, this is cool. Did you guys like those? Anybody know what I'm talking about? They're cool. I like those. But that's what this chapter is. It's not just like one thing or two things or three things. There's like 27 things here. And as, as I was going through the study, I went through it. And then afterwards, I was like, okay, well, let me give them a list of seven things or ten things to write down. And then it just kept going on and on and on. And so there's a whole bunch of helpful truths, I think, in this chapter that uh, if you, you know, I, I encourage you to listen to the Holy Spirit and he's going to be pointing out things, I think, that are applicable. But, but it really is about revival, you know. And I, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of a, a man by the name of Dr. J. Uh, Irwin Orr. He's the world's foremost authority, really, on the subject of revivals and awakenings. If you ever get a chance, I encourage you to go on YouTube. He's got some, some videos there that are amazing on the history of revival. But in the early 70s, when Dr. Orr was preaching a series of lectures on revival at Columbia Bible College, a student uh, approached him, uh, went up to him and, and asked, Dr. Orr, the student said, besides praying for revival to occur, what can I do to help bring it about? And that, that's a great question, huh? I mean, even for us here today, you know, besides praying, of course we know uh, prayer is going to be huge because it's got to be people, but it's also got to be God. It can't be people without God, and it can't be God without people. It's got to be an answer to prayer, right? But what else can we do to kind of help bring that about? That's a great question. At the end of today's study, I'm going to give you guys the answer. Um, but we're going to see in this chapter that it's awesome to discover revival. Look what we read here at verse 1. It says, And Hezekiah, he sent to all Israel and Judah, and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. For the king and his leaders and all the assembly in Jerusalem had agreed to keep the Passover in the second month. For they could not keep it at the regular time, because a sufficient number of priests had not consecrated themselves, nor had the people gathered together at Jerusalem. And the matter pleased the king and all the assembly. So they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel, from Beersheba 
to Dan that they should come to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem since they had not done it for a long time, for 300 years in the prescribed manner. Hezekiah is mentioned in in verse 1. He was a good leader. He was a godly king. He ruled in the southern kingdom of Judah from 726 B.C. to 697. And here we see in in verse 1 that he sent to all Israel and and Judah and and he wrote letters, right, to Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, essentially saying he wrote letters to all the tribes of Israel and Judah, the north and the south, um, inviting them, inviting them to come to Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord their God. You know, normally the Passover would be kept on the 14th day of the first month, but but here we read that they kept it in the second month, there at the end of verse 2. It says that, and you know, it's kind of interesting. God was so flexible. God was so gracious, huh? I mean, he made provision for them. They couldn't do it the first month. He says, that's okay. I'll adjust for you. We'll we'll do it the second month. And you read things like that in Numbers 9 and verses 1 through 3 or Exodus 12 verses 1 through 6. God is so good, right? And and what was happening apparently in verse 3, it says they couldn't keep it at the regular time because a sufficient number of priests had not consecrated themselves, right? Nor had the people gathered together at Jerusalem. And so apparently the priests weren't ready for revival, There's a little message there, right? They hadn't completely consecrated themselves according to the prescribed manner. They had the position of the leader and the priest. They had the title, but they weren't ready for revival. And that, in one sense, was like the very calling on their life. I mean, we always got to be hungry for this and ready for this, right? And so that kind of pushed everything back a month. And as I was reading this, you guys, I was just asking myself, how about me? Am I ready for revival? Am I consecrated? Are you consecrated? Are you set apart? Are you completely His? Am I causing the delay in any way? Am I holding it back? I'll tell you what. Yesterday I went to the missions conference in Calvary Chapel Conference Center, Marietta, and I had never gone to a missions conference before. I had gone to plenty of pastors' conferences. And, uh, you know, don't tell anybody I told you this, man, but I like the missions conference better than the pastors' conference, man. There's something about these missionaries who are out there in, uh, in you know, Tibet and uh, in Sudan and, you know, Cambodia. And there's just something about these guys that are out there on the front lines that are just sacrificing everything. They're leaving literally everything to go follow the calling of God in their life. And it was just a, it was a room of a thousand young people primarily that were so in love with Jesus. They were willing to follow that call on their lives. And, and I was stirred up. I, I really was. I was just blessed that God would do that work, right? That God would just, man, touch lives. And I just thought, Lord, uh, here I am. And I got the title pastor and the position of pastor. But Lord, I hope and I pray that I still have a missionary heart. And God has just been stirring me up really more than ever. You know, I want to reach out. I want to reach out to this Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, 
and to the ends of the earth. And I don't know if you guys are, feel the same way. I don't know if you're hearing the same voice of the Holy Spirit, but I, I'm talking to different people and I'm hearing the same thing. I'm hearing them say the same thing. God's stirring me up. God is calling me deeper. God is uh, kind of awakening me to something new. It's been 300 years or whatever, you know, but I can just feel it. I can just sense it. And I, and I think when we read this right here, I just like, Lord, I don't want to be someone who's not ready. I don't want to get in the way. Lord, do that work within me. And that was the case for the priests in those days. But the cool thing is this, man. I love the resolve there in verse 5. It says, so they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel. <laughs> I mean, they just said, you know what? Let's, let's start this up, man. And the word went out to all the land from the deep south city of Beersheba. That's on the, the very bottom of Israel, all the way to the northernmost city of Dan. It had been a long time. And God was calling them all to come to Jerusalem and to participate and to celebrate the, the Passover. You know, and, and when you study the, the nation of Israel, you know, Second Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, they're from a priestly perspective, and so they always cover the southern kingdom, unless the northern kingdom has something to do with the southern kingdom. And so they're writing from a priestly perspective. Some people believe maybe it was Ezra who kind of compiled everything and put it together. But it was at a time in their history where they had left their first love. They had left it. And it was cool when you see now Hezekiah, he's bringing them back to their first love. You know, and it can happen to anybody. You know, uh, one of the strongest churches really in the Bible is there in Ephesus. And it happened to them. That's why Jesus wrote a letter in Revelation 2. He said, in verses 2 through 4, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and you can't bear those who are evil. You've tested those who say they're apostles and they're not and found them liars. You persevered and have patience and labored for my namesake and you haven't become weary. I mean, you guys are like orthodox. You're busy. You're serving the Lord. You're involved in ministry. He said, but nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. And that can happen to anyone. It happened to Ephesus. Did you guys know what happened to Abraham? Did you guys know that? I was tripping out. I was tripping out the other day when I was reading my Bible. I mean, I was just like, wow. I want to show you guys this over in the book of Genesis. Look at uh, chapter 12. You can mark right here and we'll come back. Because I know you guys are reading through your Bibles. I'm so proud of you, right? And, uh, and when the Lord called Abraham, I mean, it took a while for Abram to really kick it in. He had to get rid of a few things and, you know, just uh, travel a little lighter. And then eventually the Lord appeared to him. And I love what we read in verse 7 of Genesis uh, 12. It says, And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. There's a promise. And it says, and there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him, right? And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel and, on, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he called on the name 
of the Lord. I mean, this is personal, right? He's calling on his name. He's receiving the promise. I mean, he is in love with Jesus. He is. But, but watch what happens. It says in verse 10, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, indeed, I know that you're a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. (laughs) So please say this, that you're my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. And so it was when Abraham came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful, And the princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. That's crazy. And he treated Abram well for her sake. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, Mercedes Benz. I mean, it was all there, right? I mean, he was getting rich. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And somehow the Lord communicated to Pharaoh and and called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now therefore, here's your wife. Take her. Go away. And so Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and, and all that he had. And then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had and lot with him to the south Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. In verse 3, And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. I mean, I, I read that the other day and I just said, he's, he, he left his first love. I mean, he didn't trust God for food. He didn't trust God for finances. He didn't trust God in the famine. He didn't trust God for his family. And he went down to Egypt. He started getting caught up in the world. Egypt is a, is a picture of the world. He started getting rich. I mean, to the point where he was going to lose his wife. He was going to lose all the promises of God upon his life, right? I mean, he was getting seduced by the world. But thank God for his grace in that God gave him another opportunity. Right? I mean, the Lord plagued Pharaoh's house. He protected Abram's marriage. He sent him back to where he belonged. He kicked him out of Egypt. I think that's really cool. He kicked him out and he gave him a second chance. And Abram then, he returned to where, where it all began. Do you guys remember how it was in the beginning? I mean, so miraculous, so wonderful, so beautiful, so amazing, so simple, solid. But a lot of times we get through and then we start making it all complicated and sophisticated. And God says, no, I want you... I want to make sure that you go back to the first love. There needs to be a revival. You need to return to me. We're going to see that in our study tonight. You know, Hezekiah was the, 
He was the spearhead. He was the instrument of this. Apparently, you know, and it happens to all of us when we really get used by God. It happens to me and then that then spills over into other lives. And so what does he do? As the nation's fallen away, you're going to see when you look at the history that Israel is on the verge, and we're not 100% sure exactly where they are, but some people say they are on the very verge of being carried away by the Assyrians because this is right in the middle of Hezekiah's reign. Assyria had already come. They'd done some crazy things, but there was still hope for them. And so God is now using Hezekiah to invite them before it's too late, right? And so he sends it out to everybody. Dan, Beersheba, hey, you know, come back to Jerusalem. And and so we read in verse 6, Then the runners went throughout all Israel and Judah with the letters from the king and his leaders and spoke concerning, according to the command of the king, Children of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Then he will return to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. And do not be like your fathers and your brethren who trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers, so that he gave them up to desolation as you see. Now do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which he has sanctified forever, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brethren and your children, notice that this affects your children. Your children will be treated with compassion by those who lead them captive, so that they may come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and and merciful and will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. And so they sent out the emails, right? No, I'm just joking. They didn't have emails back then, right? They sent out the letters. Well, how did they send out the letters? They didn't have UPS, right, Raymond? They weren't back then, not back then, right? No postal service, right? Their postal service back then consisted of men who would literally ride and run and proclaim the message in the big city public forums and all the small towns and villages. It was a tremendous task when you think about it because in order to reach all the people of Israel, they had to cover 9,600 square miles. And so it was crazy because he wanted to invite everybody and just as a quick side note, I think that's pretty cool. How about you? Do you want to invite everybody? Do you have a heart for everybody? Do you realize that God wants everybody to get saved? Everyone you come in contact with? I think it's cool. Hezekiah wanted from Dan to Beersheba all the way, every tribe. I want them to come. It was a super mission because it was a super message, Right? And even though it was a super simple message, return to the Lord and he will return to you. That's simple, right? You know, it's just a simple message that will change our lives. He says there in verse 7, you know, don't be like the previous generation. And we've seen examples of those who have blown it, right? They didn't receive and enjoy the good promises of God because they just didn't obey the word of God. They were defeated. How about you? Will you win in life or lose in life? 
Which will it be? It depends on whether or not you choose to do things God's way. He says there in verse 8, don't be stubborn, right? How many of you here are stubborn? Stop it, right? You know, stiff-necked, you, you know, they're like, ah, I'm not going to listen, right? I mean, you yield yourselves to the Lord. You give Him the right of way in your life. He loves you, right? I mean, you. how do you do it? I, I like what he says right there in verse 8. Now, do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord, notice, and enter His sanctuary, I mean, that's kind of cool, too. I mean, I don't know. I know it's not exactly the same, but it's in a roundabout way. There are similarities. I mean, it's almost like someone just saying in today's vernacular, get back to church. Get back into fellowship with God and His people. It's there that God says, I will meet with you, right? I mean, not that church attendance saves you, but I mean, how in the world can you say you're doing okay with God if you don't want to go to church service? A lot of people say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm okay. I'm, a, I'm right with God. I just don't like going to church. Well, I'll just tell you right now, you're not. I mean, we're supposed to be part of a body of Christ. We all have different places, but we're going to want to be around God and his people. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews 10.25 that we're not supposed to stop getting together and fellowshipping. A lot of people are that way. And, and so he says right there, the, there's something heavy. If you would, look at verse 8. The reason I, I want you to get back into fellowship and go to the sanctuary, he says right there, and serve the Lord your God. Here's the reason that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. I mean, he, you know, do you want that? Get right with God. Return to the Lord with all your heart. Stop compromising, right? I mean, Israel was right smack dab in the middle of God's heavy-handed discipline. And God was offering them kind of like a, a peace treaty, you know? I don't know. I know it sounds weird, but it's like God says, hey, you know, like stretching out his hand. Let's make a, let's make a deal, man. You just make a deal. Real simple. Give me your hand. Give me your heart. Give me your life. Let's make a deal. You return to me, I'll return to you. I'll bless your life. I mean, one is heaven. I mean, it's heaven. All the goodness of the promises of God, the anointing of God on your life and the way he wants to use you in such a tremendous way. The other is hell. I mean, and so God is reaching out his hand. I, I picture him reaching out both hands, just saying, come to me, right? I'll turn from my wrath if you turn from your sins. And as a matter of fact, let me just say this, because you might be here tonight and you might think, well, but I'm really bad. God won't take me back. Oh, yes, he will. In the twinkle of an eye, he'll take you back. Luke 15, there's a story there about how the Lord, when, when, he, when he loses a sheep, he leaves 99 and goes after the one, or like that, that lady, she lost one coin and... Imagine that. You know, she sweeps up her house and she takes it apart to find that one coin. It was valuable to her. And then he talks about the lost son and how he, I mean, he spit in God's face. And, you know, the picture there is he said, I wish you were dead. I, I want my money. I want to go live my own life. He went. He lived his own life. And whenever you live your life apart from God, you will end up in the gutter. I promise you that. So he ended up in the gutter and then, 
he's eating with the pigs and one day he comes to his senses and he says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll go back to my dad and at least maybe he can give me a, a job as a gardener or something, you know? And, and when his father sees him coming up the driveway, the Bible says that the father, he ran to him. Don't you ever think that God won't forgive you, God won't restore you. I mean, he will run to you. And so, you know, that's, that's the deal. That's what he's trying to tell Israel. Isaiah 55, 6 through 7 is, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Because it's not really the story of the prodigal son. It's the story of the forgiving father. And so, you know, that's the message. They send it out. The invitation goes out, right? And that's the letter. And so they're reading it to everybody. And then we read in verse 10, So the runners, they pass from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, as far as Zebulun. These are all different tribes in Israel, right? But look what happens. They laughed at them and mocked them. Nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Also, the hand of God was on Judah, that's the southern kingdom, to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. And so you're excited about Jesus, man. You guys remember, I don't know if you're still that way. Hopefully you are. But I don't know, would any of you here in the beginning, you were so excited that you would not shut up? Anybody here? I mean, they just couldn't close your mouth. And you probably spoke too many times, but I'd rather have you that way than now. It's the sin of silence. You know, and there is that saying, you know, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. You know what? You got to use words. You got to use words. It's the special revelation. It really is. And so they go, you go out and you tell people about the Lord. Don't stop. Don't stop sharing, Right? And I pray you have a life that backs it up, though. But share that message and then um, just know that the results are in God's hands. A lot of people are going to laugh, huh? I mean, there's kind of like, you know, the, the, the three results. One was comedy. Some saw it as funny, comedy. Uh, the second was humility. I like the way they humbled themselves. It says there in verse uh, 11. And then thirdly, there was the, the unity. This is what happens when the people obey. You know, it's crazy. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced it, how some people see it as a joke. You know, to the non-believers, uh, many of the so-called intellectuals, Christianity is considered like a comedy. It's funny. It's a joke. For whatever reason, they foolishly outgrown God. And then you've got to ask them questions. Well, explain to me your existence. Where did you come from? Well, I'm here by evolution. Really? Well, how did that happen? Well, it was a series of fortuitous occurrences. And uh, that kind of like, you know, this tadpole and that lightning rod and that, you know, muddle, puddle and dirt and time and years and explosions. And here we are. I'm like, that's funny. <laughs> That's funny. You mean to tell me that you don't believe in a maker, a creator, 
I mean, you experience love and there's no lover. You have relationships and there's not one that you can have a relationship with. That's foolish. And, but they laugh at us. I mean, it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a theist, than it does to be a Christian. You guys know this makes perfect sense. But they'll laugh, right? Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's why. Because they love their sin, right? The vast majority of them, when you guys went out and gave the message, you did not listen to the Lord, don't be discouraged by that. They ignored the invitation. They laughed at his love. They mocked his messengers. But thank God, you guys, there will always be some. Don't be discouraged. Don't stop scattering that seed. Don't stop sharing the gospel. I mean, there. I love what he says in verse 11. Nevertheless, there were some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun that humbled themselves and they, and they came to Jerusalem, right? I mean, most thought it was a joke, um, but some, they, they assessed their life honestly and, and they were brought to humility. I mean, they just uh, humbled themselves and, and simply admitted that they were sinners who needed forgiveness from those sins. And, and they came to Jerusalem. You know, the northern kingdom had been devastated through ungodly leaders, beginning with Jeroboam there. But, but now we see in verse 12 that the southern kingdom was blessed by this godly leader. Again, there in verse 12, also the, the hand of God was on Judah to give them, this is amazing, singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. I mean, just this whole thing, a comedy, yeah, humility, yeah, but unity. There's power in unity. And when God begins to work, and you read the book of Acts, and you just circle every time you see God's hand, when God's hand gets involved, things start happening. We can't do it without His hand, but when His hand is there, oh, man. How amazing this is. And the hand of God was, was on Judah now. And, and God gave them that, that unity, that integrity, right? Warren Worsby said, When God's Spirit is at work, Jesus Christ will be glorified and God's people will be unified. It's so beautiful to see how God's hand was on Judah so their heart was on God. Revival is the operation of God and cooperation of God's people. It's His hand. It starts with His hand for His glory. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. But, you know, when we, when we see that happen, it just blesses us. The singleness of heart, it means that the heart wasn't divided. They're, they weren't uh, double-minded. They were single-hearted. And they showed themselves to be that in this case, it was in the submission to the king and the leaders in the land who were truly following the word of the Lord. And God did such a great work. And so we read in verse 13, Now many people were a very great assembly. They gathered at Jerusalem to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month. 
And they arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem, and they took away all the incense altars and cast them into the brook Kidron. Then they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the second month. The priests and the Levites were ashamed and sanctified themselves and brought the burnt offerings to the house of the Lord. And they stood in their place according to their custom, according to the law of Moses, the man of God. And the priests sprinkled the blood received from the hand of the Levites, for there were many in the assembly who had not sanctified themselves. Therefore the Levites had charge of the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone who was not clean to sanctify them to the Lord. And so you know, Hezekiah sends the invitation out. Some people laugh. Some people, you know, they like, hey, this is cool. I'm going to go. And they all went. And so now we see what happens when they get there, right? I mean, when you look at the Jewish feast days, uh, their God-given holidays, holy days, you'll find the Feast of Unleavened Bread would take place on the 10th of the month. In this case, it's the second month. It's supposed to be the first month, but God worked with them, right? So the 10th of the month and then the 14th of the month is when they would celebrate Passover. And, and there was a, a great gathering here in Jerusalem. And the way that they started was by cleaning house. You know, it's interesting how up to this point, I'm talking about the Passover, the Passover, the Passover, but now they mention unleavened bread. And you're like, well, what's up with that? It's because now God wants to talk about getting rid of the sin, getting rid of the leaven in our lives, right? I mean, they're cleaning house right here. They got rid of all the other altars that that didn't belong in their life in Jerusalem. If they were altars, and sometimes there were even altars that where they would offer offerings to the Lord, it didn't matter. There was no longer a place for any type of compromise. That's when revival starts happening. God starts stirring things up, and He just says, I really want a clean house. The Holy Spirit's been talking to you and say, that doesn't belong, you don't need that, but you're like, well, I can do it, it's no big deal. And the Lord just said, no, those altars, are not supposed to be there. And so what did they do? They tore them down. I love that. And they, they threw them into the river. When I, when I first got saved, I remember getting rid of the drugs and you know, throwing it away. Even I had a whole bunch of music. And I remember hundreds and hundreds of dollars of music that I threw away. And some people thought I was crazy. But you know, it was just something that God laid on my heart. But you guys know how it is. As life progresses, things start trying to creep in their back, way back into your life. Just like the clutter. Huh, the clutter, we kind of always have to do a spring cleaning and then I think a fall cleaning. <laughs> and you do it like every year because things have their way of kind of coming back. And God says, no, I, I want you to clean house. I want you to get rid of the things that, that, are, are, that don't belong. Well, you're, well, like I'm free. Well, let me ask you a question. Is it enhancing your relationship with God? Is it a wing that makes you fly? Or is it a weight that brings you down? I mean, I think God says, no more duplicity, singleness of heart, right? I mean, this would be a time where everyone was uh, searching their houses and searching their hearts. Uh, there was to be no, un, there was no, no leaven uh, left anywhere. And literally, you guys, they would search their cupboards, take everything out. 
and they just make sure there's no leaven. When the Jews were redeemed from Egypt, it happened so suddenly that the bread didn't have time to rest and rise because they had to run, right? And this is symbolic of the fact that when we get saved by Jesus, sin shouldn't be given the time, so to speak, to rest and rise. Because the Bible says that that leaven is a picture of sin and hypocrisy. When you call yourself a Christian, why, why wouldn't you want to be just like Jesus? And so they're searching their homes and they're, they're searching Jerusalem. They're getting rid of everything that doesn't belong. And, and you guys, I want to encourage you to do that. You know, go home. Just is anything, you need to throw away anything? I remember when I first got saved, my father-in-law, uh, he's, you know, he came to the Lord too, but, you know, little by little. And I still remember he had statues of naked ladies around the house, right? And he called them art. And so my wife, she just finally said, you know what? We got to get rid of these things, you know? And uh, finally he threw them out. And, you know, just go through. You search your heart. Lord, is there anything inside of me that doesn't belong, you know? I mean, you make that decision. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And anything that doesn't want to serve the Lord or anything that doesn't reflect that, it's gone. And then you pray to God to search your heart. Because a lot of times we can't see the things that he sees. Psalm 26, verse 2, it says, Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and, and my heart. Test it. Test it, because it's then that the, the dross rises to the surface. And so you blow it with your wife. Why did you blow it with your wife? A lot of times you blow it with your wife and all you want to do is just unblow it. You know, you're just like, I just want to fix it. And so what do you do? Maybe you buy her some chocolate or maybe some roses or you tell her you're going to whatever, get her that expensive jewelry. You didn't fix it. You didn't fix it. You got to find out why did you react like that? A lot of times it's pride. And God says, I want to deal with that. You know, try me, Lord. Test me. And God says, okay, I'll test you. Watch. But when it rises to the surface, I encourage you, when you sin, get with the Lord and ask him, why did that happen? He might tell you, man, you didn't pray. You haven't been in the word. You haven't been in fellowship. You don't love her the way that I want you to. I mean, that goes both ways, right, ladies? When you sin, you got to check your own heart. Anything that doesn't belong, kill it, right? This is what we want. They're breaking down altars here. They're getting serious with God. There's a picture here of a principle in our life. You know, it's interesting to me. Look at verse 15. Then they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the second month. But this is interesting. The priests and the Levites were ashamed and sanctified themselves. They had to kind of get their life right and brought the burnt offering to the house of the Lord. And, you know, uh, why were they ashamed? And it may have been that the priests and Levites, as they're watching everybody break down the altars, they're like, well, why didn't we ever implement that? You know, that they were practicing too much toleration or maybe even some participation in some of that. You know, and the Lord, even they were ashamed. Thank God for the opportunity, though, that he provides for reconciliation and then sanctification. And there they are again when you read down and then God just made it right. And there they are again receiving the sacrifices. Once again, people are getting right with God. See, 
I mean, many people were, were needing this. They needed to be taught. Look at verse 18. For a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not cleansed themselves. Yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. So Hezekiah prayed for them. And verse 20 says, And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. You know, many people participated in the Passover, but apparently not all of them sanctified themselves according to the way it's lit, written in, in the letter of the law. So uh, they were struck, they got sick because of their sin. It'd be kind of like, you know, like they ate at Chipotle or something, right? And all of a sudden there's this outbreak of E. coli and you're wondering what happened, right? And you trace it back and you trace it back and all these right here, the, the common denominator with all these right here, the reason they're sick is because they did the Passover, they went to the holy place of God and, and they didn't do it according to the letter of the law, right? And so what ended up happening was Hezekiah, you know, God had already shown some flexibility because remember the law is not... I mean, man wasn't made for the law. The law was made for man. I mean, it's so cool to see the flexibility of God here. Hezekiah, he just he just prays for them, right? And God was gracious to them because really the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. God sees the heart. Some people are looking like they're doing so good and God sees the, the putridness of their heart, the hypocrisy and the wickedness of it God sees it others you know they're stumbling through and God sees a genuineness about them a sincerity of them that's why you got to make sure that your heart is right because you can fool you know all of the men some of the time and some of the men all of the time but you can never fool God and your heart has to be right I mean here they weren't doing it intentionally there's a difference between accidental manslaughter and and first-degree murder, right? I mean, there's a, a difference. Even though the result is the same, the heart isn't. One is done accidentally, the other is done defiantly, and God knows the difference. What a blessing, huh, to see what prayer makes, huh? Maybe you have a, a nephew, and like Lot, when Abraham prayed for him, what a difference it made. Or maybe you... Uh, like Peter, there's someone that you know that denied the Lord and there you are and God just lays them on your heart and you're lifting them up in prayer. I tell you what, you keep doing that. I've seen the Lord answering prayers that we are just consistent. You just keep on knocking, keep on seeking, keep on asking. What a difference prayer makes. And right here, the Lord will listen to you just like he did to Hezekiah. Ezekiel 22, 30 and 31, the Bible says that God is looking for somebody to pray, somebody to stand in the gap. If he finds no one, and it's interesting how it all works, he might have to judge, but if there's someone there to pray, he might save. We know that Paul knew the power of prayer. We read in Philemon 1, 22, he says, But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust through your prayers I shall be granted to you. And so he knew what a difference 
prayer makes. Here we see Hezekiah. These guys were getting sick, and God intervened. Watch where God takes it in verse 21. So the children of Israel who were present at Jerusalem, they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests, they praised the Lord day by day, singing to the Lord, accompanied by loud instruments. And Hezekiah gave encouragement to all the Levites, I love this, who taught the good knowledge of the Lord. And they ate throughout the the feast seven days, offering peace offerings and making confession to the Lord God of their fathers. I mean, there's so much taking place here. I I thought it was actually kind of cool. In verse 21, you see the the worship that's going on, right? They're singing. Um, You see that they're encouraging. I like what Hezekiah did. He encouraged the Levites who were doing what? teaching the good knowledge of the Lord. I mean, and I, and I love just that they worship. Do you guys notice there at the end of verse 21, accompanied by soft instruments? Do you guys notice that there? No, it's loud instruments. You know, and so it's okay every once in a while to get loud, guys. You know what I'm talking about? I like it loud. Sometimes it gets too loud, but you know, it's like, man, play those drums and they'll hit those cymbals and you know, and, and feel the bass every once in a while, you know, because that's what they were doing. They were they were praising God with these loud instruments and uh and they're grubbing. I mean they're just grubbing, huh? They're eating food. And you know, you guys know that the uh, the seven feasts or holy days, holidays, uh for the Jews, only one was fasting. All the rest they're feasting. And so I think that's kind of cool, too, to be honest with you. What is food for us as Christians when we get together? What is it? It's fellowship, huh? It's fellowship, and that's what we see going on here. It's interesting even how they mention the peace offerings in verse 22, because the peace offering, if you have an NIV, it calls it a fellowship offering. And what that is in reference to is you would eat your meal in the presence of God. So you would fellowship with God fellowshipping with the people. It was just a beautiful thing. It really, it really was. And so they didn't want it to end in verse 23. Then the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days. And they kept it another seven days with gladness. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep. And the leaders gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep, and a great number of priests sanctified themselves. You guys like it? The barbecue smell? You guys like that? I do. That's what it was. It was a barbecue smell. Oh man, this is great. Everybody's there. They're worshiping God in spirit and truth. It's revival. It's so cool. The whole assembly of Judah rejoiced. Also the priests and Levites, all the assembly that came from Israel. The sojourners who came from the land of Israel and those who dwelt in Judah. So there was what? Great joy in all Jerusalem. I just love that. That's what I want. I want joy. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. And we're talking like 300 years. Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people. And notice this. And their voice was heard And their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place, to heaven. You know, 
a lot of times people are like, well, I want to, I want to go home. I want to go home. I want to, I want to watch the news. You know, um, and then there are those who just say, I want more. <laughs> I want an encore. That's where, that's where they were, right? They wanted more. Why? Because God was moving. You know, you guys have probably heard of the revival. Um, that, I don't know. It was one of the greatest crusades ever. Uh, Billy Graham's first crusade in Los Angeles, right? 1949. It was organized by the Christian Group of Christ for Greater Los Angeles. And you guys know that it was scheduled for three weeks, right? But it was extended to to eight weeks. I mean, God was just pouring out his spirit, man. I mean, 350,000 people uh, were showing up by this in this campaign. And by the end, 3,000 of them had decided to give their life to Jesus Christ. I mean, this is what catapulted Billy Graham into the spotlight, but not catapulted by by men. I mean, catapulted by God. In one sense, I see like a similarity between him and Hezekiah. You know, and and I just want to encourage you guys to be to be blessed by that. You know, I mean, when you serve the Lord in such a way, salvation comes and it, it brings joy. We read there in verse 25 that the whole assembly of Judah, what they, they rejoiced, right? In verse 26, there was great joy in Jerusalem. And that's what I want, you know? That's what I want for the people. You know, I remember growing up, uh, I didn't smile a lot for whatever reason. I, I don't know. It's because I didn't like my teeth or, or what. And I remember um, just people used to say, smile. They used to tell me that, smile. Sometimes you look at people and, you know, maybe they're not thinking about it, but they got like a scowl on their face, like all the time. And uh, and I'm not saying, that, you know, you got to fake it, but... Maybe there's something going on in their heart. Maybe there's something going on that that God wants to meddle with the middle. And God wants to put joy, you know, for the journey. Not just happiness, but joy. Happiness is dependent on circumstances, but joy is dependent on salvation. Happiness is by feelings. Joy is by faith. Happiness can be taken away. Joy can only be given away. Happiness is when we're given something. Joy is when we're forgiven everything. Happiness is human. Joy is divine. Joy is Jesus. Do you have Jesus? Do you know that you have Jesus? Isn't that what they said? In Luke chapter 2, verse 10, Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. You know, I pray that you guys are encouraged by the message um, that God loves you, that God's willing to give you another chance, that it's a simple message. It's not complicated. You don't have to go home and you know whip out the algebra equations and, and say, how am I going to figure this out? No, return to God, he'll return to you. Something's not right, just get rid of it. Give it to God, he'll bless you. Well, how am I going to know? Just listen. Listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and he will give you the marching orders. What happened right here in this Passover, which of course we know points to Jesus, is that there were some who were already saved and some who got saved, but they were all coming to this place and to participate and to celebrate and to grow in such a way that they had never been before. You know, salvation for us, uh, maybe you're here and you're like, well, I'm already saved, but it never gets old. 
it's always a blessing to think about, right? And here, as a result of this, the leaders and the Levites and the priests, they then prayed for the people, and their voice was heard, rising all the way to his holy place, all the way to heaven. Oh, Lord, I pray for that person. I think of this guy right here. He needs healing from cancer. That one right there, you know, they need a job. That one right there, Lord, and you're just praying. And as God sees the revival that's taking place in your heart as a Levite, as a priest, as a leader, then those prayers, they're effectual, they're fervent. And then this, they reach God. And next thing you know, it just starts to spread like wildfire. See, that's what God wants to do. I have a feeling that when our prayers make it to heaven, more and more people are going to make it to heaven. I have a feeling that when our prayers make it up to heaven, then God will rain down revival on earth. I don't know if you're here today and you're like, well, it's not going to happen. I don't know. Maybe you're a prophet. Maybe you know more than me. I don't know. But I know this, that I'm not going to stop. I, I, I will die first. I'm not going to stop praying and trying and searching my heart. Because God's put us here, you guys, in this place with the people that are around us, with our family and this flock and this fellowship. And God wants to do a work. You remember the question I, I asked you guys in the beginning? I, I was mentioning about Dr. Orr. The student said, besides praying for revival to occur, what can I do to help bring it about? That's a great question. I mean, you know, I, I was looking at that and I said, wow, this is cool. What's the answer, right? And without a moment's pause, Dr. Orr stared at the student and he said, besides prayer, you must let it begin with you. And if we all have that, oh, look out. God's going to do a good work, huh? You, no matter who you are, you might be here today and you don't even know Jesus. It can begin with you. God loves you. God can use you. You might be here today. You've been a Christian for 67 years. It might be with you. My prayer is that all of us would have that, that, that faith, that understanding that God can really do this work. Hezekiah, Billy Graham, Matt Lighthouse, it doesn't matter who it is. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626-454-3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.